Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Friday, October 2nd. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. I love the show today, man. I really love the show. I got a, a real charge out of it. So we start out with Bon Jovi. I feel like every producer on our show has like a white whale. Everyone, everyone who works on our show has that one uh, guest they'd love to talk to. I would love to actually get them on and find out what they are. Maybe because that would like bully the guest into coming on. I'll say mine is Conan O'Brien. I've always wanted to talk to Conan, o- Conan O'Brien. Um, and we came close one time, but uh, that's a story for another time. But one of our producers, his white whale is uh, Bon Jovi, John Bon Jovi. And today we have John Bon Jovi on the show. But that's not necessarily the reason you should listen to it. It's because John does a couple of things here. He talks about how his entire life has been about trying to lift people up and how when he got a call that COVID-19 was happening, instead of like, oh, okay, I'm just going to do- donate some money, he like went and washed dishes and started working in a, in a kitchen right, trying to help people out who, who might need a meal. And he just says, I want to write songs to help people through this moment. He talks about the key change. Uh, one of my favorite radio moments, he talks about the key change to living on a prayer. And he talks about what, why he's comfortable having gray hair and being a bit of an older rock star. After that, Ethan Hawke, who was live on the show today, talks about, um, he stars in a new uh, show about the abolitionist John Brown. So we we talk about how history is taught. We talk about – what do we talk about? We talk about God and like the religion that is in our society versus, versus like your personal faith with God and how that in, informs your morals. We talk about white allyship. We talk about our families. I don't know. I, I love – Loved every second I talked to Ethan Hogg. After that, the story of Julius Eastman, who is an incredibly important composer and performer who I feel we do not talk about enough. If that name doesn't ring a bell, stick around because this is someone you should definitely know about, an incredibly important composer in the history of this uh, in Western music. And then finally, Natalie Krinsky. After that, uh, she's going to talk about her new movie, The Broken Hearts Gallery, which is all about why we hold on to artifacts from past relationships, even when we've moved on in our heart. And I want to let you know before the show starts that on Monday on the show, this is pretty exciting, Alanis Morissette will be here. So make sure to, you know, I don't know, download the podcast on Monday or subscribe so it'll automatically download because I know how the internet works. All right, show starts now. Welcome to the show. It is Friday, and we also have Ethan Hawke coming up in about a half hour. He'll be live on the show. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to talk to him about his new American historical TV show and just, you know, get to talk to Ethan Hawke. But in the meantime, take a listen to this. It's my life. It's now
That right there is what we call the Q Bon Jovi Mega Mix. Those are all songs that have lit up packed arenas for decades. Remember packed arenas? <sighs> and either elevated or ruined a karaoke night or two, depending on who your friends are. But when you listen back to the songs that have made up Bon Jovi's Hall of Fame career, you start to notice a bit of a theme. They're inspirational. They fill you with hope and energy and excitement. And you don't have to be Tommy or Gina to get that Bon Jovi, or the Joves, as we call him, has been lifting up his audience since the beginning. And he's still at it. His new album is called 2020, and it's out today. And if you give it a listen, you'll hear Bon Jovi tackle life in the era of COVID, systemic racism, the gun violence in the United States. I mean, heavy stuff, but somehow still finding a way to lift you up. When you can't do what you do That's a little of the song Do What You Can from Bon Jovi's brand new album 2020. And here is my conversation with John Bon Jovi. How are you? I'm great, Tom. Thank you. It's lovely to see you. I love the story behind that song about your inspiration to write that song. I wonder if you could tell it. Um, COVID hits and we have three community restaurants in New Jersey that works off of a model of volunteerism. But because of COVID, no more volunteers could come in and assist in the restaurants. So I was called upon to wash dishes like I did when we first opened. My wife, Dorothea, took our photograph and wanted to post to our in-need population that we'd still be there. I think she was looking for me to give her a quote about a time and what day of the week might be open. But I said, if you can't do what you do, you do what you can. Mm. Next day, I said, wow, there's a Bon Jovi song title for you. And so I sat down to write the song. And it was a song of inclusion. You know, we're going through a difficult time on the planet Earth. And anyone from everywhere could relate to the lyric. The love I felt, the love I felt for you in that song towards first responders, towards working people was, was really powerful, but not incredibly surprising given the history of your music, even going back to the beginning of your career. What is it about the stories of, of working people uh, doing what they can that inspires you as a songwriter? Well, I grew up in that. You know, all of the band were from blue collar backgrounds. Both of our parents had to work full time jobs in order to make ends meet. It was what we knew. And it's where we grew up and it's basically where we live today. And um, and so that's what we do. And in this kind of time of need, when there's such extremes like a covid crisis, if I pitched you this as a science fiction movie, you'd have thrown me out your office. Mm. <laughs> you know? But here we are living it. So if you can't go to work, if you can't produce, if you can't you know, go to school, you have to do what you can to help mankind. And, and that's really the basis of the, of the song. I, I find it also interesting and, and lovely that you know, as things have gotten bigger for you, as you've had this major success in your life, there there is a world in which people who have that success not forget where they come from, but they have a hard time uh, relating to working people as well. That That's never seemed to be a problem for you to, to stay grounded. Um, what do you think the cause of that is? Again, I think it's upbringing. Never taking this for granted and knowing that it, it's fleeting. 
because I am fortunate enough to do what it, I love to do, which is to write a song, uh, I've been given this great privilege. Now, that's not who I am. It's just what I do. That's the bottom line. It's not who I am. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't have all the trappings of a reality show, <laughs> Botox, and I've, I've, I've got gray hair. What kind of rock star has gray hair? You know, <laughs> but at least it's still mine, Thomas. It's, at least it's still mine. No, but you know seriously, I, mean? I think that's important to you. I think that's important to you. What you I think it's that? a part of who I am that makes it important. You know, that it's. Uh, I know a lot of my heroes or my peers that you know may 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 have a difference of opinion and like to dye their hair horse color brown and <laughs> and get Botox every six weeks. But it's just not for me. It's just not who I am. That's that's a, it's inspiring to hear, you know, that there's not just one way of of getting older or one way of progressing through the music industry as it is, you know, you can keep, you can keep the faith. But I also think that, I mean, keep the faith who I'm talking to, hey. but I didn't mean that was a, that was accidental, uh, John, that was accidental, <laughs> but it does, but it does make me think about the songs you've written that have also inspired people. You know, you look at Limitless on this new record, you look at yeah. keep the faith, you look at living on a prayer. It feels like not just telling the stories, but to, to raise people, to bring people's spirits as part of your modus operandi here in your life. There was a time when I was very aware of that and almost to the point where I wasn't going to let you know even if I was hurting because I thought, you don't want me, you know, the character of what you believe I am, yeah. to be hurting. And then I came to that reality. It says, that's what makes you human is, of course, you're supposed to show that you're hurting. But trying to still find the optimism in the hurt is what makes you human. And so whether it was It's My Life or Limitless, you know, Limitless, think of it in the context of COVID. Um, God knows we were all waking up and not knowing what day of the week it was. And so it's like, okay, everybody, wake up. We gotta, we gotta get, gotta get a move on here. We gotta, you know, try to do something. Felt like we were all in this kind of, you know, bad movie, The Truman Show. And so you've tried to find optimism even in the in the darkest of scenarios. You, there was a time where you felt like you couldn't let people know you were hurting? I think that was in, in my mind. It wasn't true, but it, in my mind at a time in my life that I thought that, you know, they folks look to us for optimism. And there was periods in my career when I'd look on other genres of music that weren't as optimistic and I thought, no, well, my light is on optimism. And so people expect that of us. And they found hope in those songs. And so I was, I was thinking, oh, maybe I need to just shine that light of positivity all the time. But that's not real. You see, yeah. you have to admit to the mirror that I'm hurting, you know. And, and so that's what makes us all better humans is to embrace the hurt. But what a powerful feeling that must be to look out into a crowd when you're singing It's My Life or you're singing, you will be singing Limitless or you're singing one of those songs. To know that, and I, and I put it this way, to know that while you're singing the song the way you wrote it about your own experience, every single person in that audience is singing their own song with you. Like they might be mouthing your lyrics, but they're singing their own song. I could, what a privilege, but what a responsibility too. When you do it from a place that is pure, that's when the connection happens. When we wrote It's My Life, I had to fight for the line, like Frankie said, I did it my way. Why? I had just finished a movie. 
um, called U571. I had come home and I really wanted to embrace the whole Sinatra thing. He had just passed away. And the idea of making records on his own terms and, and movies on his own terms. And Richie Sambora said to me, who's Frankie? And I explained Sinatra and he says, who gives a shit? And I said, I do. And, and my definition of Frankie was that it was your brother, your best friend. It was a stranger that you'd seen on the street. And then he went, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> and, and, and I won the argument because Frank was not Frankie to anyone else but me. You know, it was my, that was my Frank. And and everybody else made it their brother, their buddy, their their best friend. So so that that line to you was about, uh, even it's though not, it is a great responsibility, even though it is a great uh, a great privilege, it's still it's your path. Absolutely, yeah. And, and that's when the that's when the most you know biggest connections have happened in our songs is when you really put it from that pure place and you're ready to go to the wall for it. You used the word earlier that's been on my mind a lot, which is cynicism. You don't want to be, end up being cynical. But my God, John, there's so many causes not to have hope right now between COVID-19, between, I mean, the, the, the current moment we're living in between the, the U.S. election coming up. I find it interesting that you're fighting cynicism. How do you do it? What keeps you hopeful? I try to find hope even when it's difficult. And I'm not telling you that I'm able to always do right. it. It takes conversation with people some professional, some friends. Yeah, It takes reading and letting your guard down so that you can be open enough and have honest enough conversations. But I did find hope in these last few months in the next generation. And I really am hopeful that this graduating class of 2020, whether it's high school and college and these young people, and I don't mean this to sound like an old guy, but they were born out of 9-11 and they graduate school, whether it's high school or college, in the midst of a pandemic. These are gonna be to me the great innovators, the great inventors, the great ones who see beyond color of your skin or rigid religious or sexual beliefs, you know? And I really believe that that generation is the ones that are gonna say, enough of you old white men who messed everything up. It's time for us to, to, to make the better world happen. You heard you heard uh, former U.S. President Barack Obama and, and uh, current Democratic nominee and former Vice President Joe Biden say the same thing. They would say in their speeches, I noticed that both times they would say, you know what? I also want to shout out the new generation who might just be able to fix the problems. See, I, I, I swear I didn't hear that from either of them, but I agree having witnessed my third or my second son uh, graduate high school this year and watching him and all his buddies and and just witnessing what I'm seeing. These kids, their priorities are different than mine were. They were born at a different time. Um, it'd be easy for them to get down, but I think that they're going to be the ones that save us. What a different life you were living then at his age than he is living now, hey? Absolutely. And I bring that point up over and over. I was born when John Kennedy was president and telling us that we were going to go to the moon. And, and I graduated high school when a guy named Ronald Reagan was the president and he was that cowboy from the movies that was saying rah, 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 you know. And so America's kind of rah, rah period was much different then than the world that these kids are born into now. 
It's it's a powerful sentiment. But look what you look what you were able to do because of that opportunity. You know, I do want to talk a little bit about music and a little bit about touring, a little bit about your success up to this point. Uh, mm-hmm. So many musicians aren't on the road right now. You know, um, I, I I think about. Uh, yeah, vir- virtually every musician isn't on the road right now. And not just musicians, but touring outfits, um, lighting directors, tour managers, bus drivers, an entire industry is is shut down. As someone who not just does clubs, not just does arenas, does stadiums, what's been on your mind right now during this during this pause? It's a reset button. I, I'm very, very aware of the economy that was moved by the entertainment business, whether it's you're a musician and you're in a touring entity, or if you were the concessionaire or the usher at the arenas or the stadiums, the parking attendant, you know, those economies are changed maybe forever. We went out of our way to cancel the tour, not postpone it. Um, I had no interest in letting the promoter hold on to, money for a year and a half that people may need for their credit card bills and for the rent. Mm. I, I was very cognizant on day one that we didn't know when it was going to gear up again. And, and I wasn't worried about the fan base not wanting to buy a ticket in 18 months from now. If they don't want to buy a ticket in 18 months from now, it's because they can't, mm. you know? And so I wanted them to have that money back. And so I was very aware of, of, uh, people's, you know, situation. And, and I don't think we've really realized the depths of that yet. I think we're still on Novocaine as a, as a world, you know, the, the economies haven't really been shifted yet. I think it's coming. I'm interested to go back to sort of the before time to sort of happier times. Not every artist, very few artists get to play the, the rooms that you've played to move from arenas to stadiums. Give me an example of if not your favorite show, then a show that comes to mind where you looked out into the audience and said, how did I get here? I'm sure it happens a lot, but can you think of one in particular? Not really. You know, and, and it'd be a big surprise, I guess. You know, there'd be nights where you'd, you'd say to me, well, wasn't that one of the highlights? And I'd go, no, because I was distracted. I, you know, for whatever reason, wasn't in the moment. And other nights where I go, no, that really was good. Um, and it's not about size. It's just about a connection. Sometimes it's just the connection with the, the band or the audience or just maybe how I felt that day. So size really was never the motivator. It sure is sweet to have the photographs to look back on, but that's really not what makes you want to do it in the morning. But don't you have to change your performance style? I know when, when friends of mine who have moved from, even in Canada, have moved from bars to hockey rinks. They said it was a whole different style of performance they have to do in order to do that. I can imagine it's the same for moving to arenas and stadiums. It's a, it's a different style of performance. It can be. Um, again, you know, that's up to the individual. I'm not going to learn dance moves. I don't, <laughs> like, uh, I don't like pyrotechnics at our shows. But, you know, in this in this day and age, maybe now more than when we started playing stadiums, the quality of video is such that you could see a bead of sweat. So in truth, I could be, I could be as intimate in a stadium as I can be in a nightclub, in a cabaret lounge, if you're aware of the camera. Now, mm. you know, the big grandiose moves when you're 
really a hundred plus yards away and three tiers down from the guy in the top of the bleachers in the stadium. Mm. I could jump up and down and do jumping jacks all I want. I'm still only an inch and a half tall to that guy yeah. who's looking from that far away. <laughs> yeah. So I'll tell you what it was more prevalent for me to be more animated was when we were that opening act and I had to get your attention ah. because you didn't know my songs as well. Yeah. You know, when I had to do what was called headhunting and, and you, you know, maybe a language barrier, you know, I had to go out there unknown in the Soviet Union when I was used to relying on, okay, folks, and here's one called Living on a Prayer. Who are, who are you opening for? We did a festival. I'll give you a great little anecdote. Okay. We, we played the Moscow Music Peace Festival in 1982. Nine, we were the headliner. It was a band, you know, the a ridiculous lineup of you know bands of the moment, which was the Scorpions and Ozzy Osbourne and Motley Crue and Skid Row, and uh, we went out there and were the closer. And if this was after having Slippery When Wet and New Jersey. Two massively big records mm -hmm. where all I would have to do is say the title of the song and the stadiums would erupt. Mm. Well, I'm in the Soviet Union where they've never had those records. Mm. So we had to follow the Scorpions, which were a ridiculously live band. They were great live. And in truth, we got our butts kicked because I, I went out there and did what I would do to an audience who knew my records. And the second night, on the same stage, in the same lineup, I knew how to win the crowd over. And what I did was I took a Russian soldier, did the old story that you've heard now a hundred times. I gave him blue jeans yeah. and T-shirts for a Russian military outfit. I came down the aisle in the Russian military outfit. I told the band to just play the intro of that song over and over and over. I'll get there eventually. They did as I asked. I jumped over the barricade. I had the hat and the coat on. I won the moment because now I had to go, okay, how do I win without any cheap tricks? I love, I, I love it. Yeah. I love that's, it. You know, that's, that's what it, that's what it meant to be a great entertainer. Well, let, let, I want you to get spiritual with me just for a second. Take a listen to this. John, I want to talk specifically about the key change to living on a prayer. So I have been on dance floors where that key change just makes everybody erupt. I have been at house parties where that key change makes everybody erupt. I've been at sports. I've never heard a more effective key change. Whether that is the most effective is worth a debate. But I want to know from you, when you are on stage and you do the key change, do you feel it too? Thank you for asking the question that haunts me every single night. <laughs> I wish we didn't do the key change. <laughs> and when I was 25, it wasn't so bad. <laughs> but when you're sitting up in that stratosphere <laughs> at 58 every night, you know, the, the big one before the solo is a high C. Oh, and then the, the key change just, you know, takes you even higher. Believe me, it's not easy. It ain't easy. But it feels good, I bet. Well, I know the, the magnitude of what it was um, after the fact. I will admit readily 
It wasn't my idea. I'm <laughs> one of three writers on the song. Yeah. You know, I, I co-wrote that with Richie Sambor and Desmond Child. We created it, the three of us, out of nothing. Nobody had a damn idea when we walked in the room. And we created every inch of that song. And in doing so, that damn key change came up. And I was like, sure, I can hit those notes. When you punched in, and then you <laughs> hit stop, and then you punched in, and then you hit stop, and then you punched in, and you hit stop. <laughs> Man alive, you know, now I have had to perform that song probably 4,000 times over the years. It's not easy. And if you don't do it, people are so mad at you. If, they, if you didn't oh, do the key change, you, know, you can't I not do it. it. It, just, it, it. It is what it is. Well, John, I'll tell you this. We're, um, I, I, first off, I think your music has brought people so much joy over the years. And I, I don't think we treat joyful music the way we potentially should. So thank you for the gift of your joyful music. I also want to say that the person who produced this interview, Mitch, uh, uh, you are his white whale. You are his dream guest. He's always wanted to have in the 10 years he's been on this show. Wow, thanks, Mitch. So... Uh, it means a lot to him and it means a lot to us to have you here as well John thank you so much for your time thank you Thomas really appreciate it this ain't a song for the broken hearted a silent prayer for faith departed and I ain't gonna be just a face in the crowd you're gonna hear my voice when That is John Bon Jovi. You heard the man. It's his life. That is John Bon Jovi with his classic song, It's My Life, off his album Crush from 2000. Just before that, you heard me talking to Bon Jovi about his new album called 2020, and it just came out today. I got to tell you, sometimes you play a clip for somebody and uh, you don't know what's going to happen, and then sometimes you play a clip for somebody and they give you that kind of story. Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Tom Power. We're emerging from a summer of confronting racism and police violence and white supremacy. But for every activist who's demanded change, for every call to action to tear the system down, there are other people who respond by suggesting reform measures instead or rejecting any kind of major evolution outright. There's this idea that too much change too quickly is dangerous or reckless. 
But really, these ideas are nothing new. If you reach back into history, you'll find all kinds of examples of people who pushed for radical change, even when it made everyone else kind of nervous. One of the most essential dissenters in American history is the subject of a new Showtime series. His name was John Brown. He was a preacher, an activist, an abolitionist. And a guy who took up arms against his own country to end the institution of slavery. The show is called The Good Lord Bird. Ethan Hawke plays John. You might have seen some of Ethan's work through the years. And he's had nearly 100 roles in movie and TV and the theater. And if I tried to list them all, we wouldn't have enough time to talk to Ethan Hawke. So he joins me on the line now to talk about his new show. Hi, Ethan. How are you? I'm great. It's great to be with you. It's nice to talk to you as well. When did you first hear of John Brown and what was your first impression of him? You know, I guess, strangely, you know, John Brown is not somebody that was really taught in schools, at least not in the schools that I went to at the time period I was growing up with. He's certainly not featured heavily. Uh, I was born in Texas, and so I was taught that John Brown was a lunatic and a terrorist and a footnote in history who just was an idiot. Um, and then my mother, my parents split up, and I, I ended up moving to Vermont. And then you start to hear word of, you know, that he was a, a moral leader, you know, and you start understanding the way that history gets told or how it gets taught to young people. But uh, I didn't really get intimate with him. I mean, he's just a, a cursory. I might have I might have heard of Harper's Ferry, but I had no idea why John Brown was famous, just that he was an abolitionist. Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, you know, I kind of knew the name. But when I read James McBride's book, he makes the whole world completely come alive and he tells it with so much wit and love and humor. You know, normally you think about abolitionists or anytime people start talking about equal rights or social justice, you kind of uh, feel like you're being talked at, you know, um, and that's part of a lot of us want to take care of our kids and live our life. And uh, and we want this stuff to just take care of itself, you know, uh, but uh McBride makes it possible to really live in this world and really see it from an intimate point of view. And the whole world comes alive and it's full with all the stupidness and silliness and idiots that real life is full of. And uh, I just fell in love with the book. I, I saw I saw a quote about it that said this show that said that speaks to what you're talking about. That said it was written more in the style of Red Fox than of, of Toni Morrison. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's the thing, you know, it, it, you got it. It's. It's like John Brown as Chris Rock would tell it to you or Richard Pryor, Red Fox. You know, it's it's a tall tale. It's it's told in the uh, same kind of spirit as Mark Twain might tell you a tale. It's not necessarily true, but the spirit of it has something to say to you. He's hopefully. A, he's a challenging guy in the show. I mean, I'm, I'm just imagining as an actor. I don't act, but I can only imagine. Right. You know, he's sort of in some places he's rambling and unhinged and this religious vigilante. And other times he's, he can be quite tender, um, but he's obsessed with the cause of ending slavery, whether it's by violence, whether it's by war, or any other means. He's at least sort of an eccentric guy, a weird eccentric guy in the show. So tell me a little bit about uh, approaching the character as an actor. Well, you know, duality is incredibly exciting to play. Right. You know, hypocrisy of a human being. He is, he loves people. He loves people so much that he refuses to let anybody be horrible to anybody else. And if you are, he's going to beat you up, you know? I mean, it's a, so it's, I'm quoting scripture and I'm loading my pistol, you know? I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating guy. He was unflagging in his belief that whatever we are, it, we are made by the same maker. 
And so we must treat one another with respect. And if you don't, I will not treat you with respect. You know, I will, I will do unto others as you would have done unto me. You know, I mean, he's, uh, <laughs> I found him thrilling because of what you just said. I, he was a human being. I read his letters. I mean, you start with McBride's book and there's a tone and a mood. So yeah. I'm not playing the historical John Brown. I'm playing John Brown the way James McBride imagines him, sure. you know, which is which is liberating. But I still I read all his letters and I read other books, his great books, Midnight Rising about him. And and you see just a man full of tremendous contradiction. He loved his boys, but he wasn't sad. He got them killed. He, he knew that someday the country would be ashamed of slavery and that they would never be ashamed of his boys. So he, he shed his life. He was not confused about what brotherhood and sisterhood meant. And it has nothing to do with, you know, your complexion. Can you tell me a little bit about Onion? The story is not told through the eyes of John Brown. It's told through the eyes of a character named Onion. What's, uh, I don't want to spoil anything here, but what's his relationship with John Brown? Well, that's, I mean, you know, this is the, the, the genius uh, magic trick of McBride is you think you're talking about race, but I, I, I set out to liberate this young man who's in bondage, but I'm so out to lunch that I don't even notice that he's a boy. I think he's a girl and I, I give him my daughter's dress, but he's, he doesn't think he's been liberated. He just thinks he's been captured by another abusive white guy. And he, he just can't even comprehend that this guy means him well. Uh, so he puts on the dress and he pretends to be a girl because he's afraid that if he's not a girl, they won't take care of him, you know? And so one minute you're talking about race and the next thing you're talking about gender. And then you think you're talking about insanity versus sanity or North and South. And, you know, McBride keeps balancing these dualistic notions until you realize that life, humanity doesn't have those labels. I want to read this quote for you that we found from Malcolm X and and what he said about allies and the kind of uh, ally that John Brown was. He said, quote, we don't need those kind who encourage us to be polite. We don't need those kind who tell us how to be patient. No, if we want some white allies, we need the kind that John Brown was or we don't need you. What did Malcolm X's words about John Brown like say to you? Look, a lot of blood was shed over racial equality a long time ago, and we have not done enough. To, to live, you know, to, to live that equality. We haven't done it. I mean, you know, Canada fares much better. Uh, you know, I have a place up in Nova Scotia. And it's, it's near Guysboro, which was one of the places was the end of the Underground Railroad. And you guys have a lot to be proud of. But this country has some some problems in its DNA, you know, and its structural foundation. And if you don't look at it, you, you're just blind. And what Malcolm X is saying is it's like... You know, the, the idea of John Brown used to say this, they'd say that he was violent and he would say, what do you think human bondage is? What do you, I mean, you're acting like I'm starting the violence. You are perpetrating the violence every day. I am just making you aware of what your actions are to other people. And that is the kind of allyship. I mean, if you want to talk about a white ally and what's the lane for it, you know, John Brown is a is a waving the big flag of unwavering human equality. Now, that said, he's also pro-violence, but he was not pro-violent his whole life. You know, he was a non-violent abolitionist until he was 51. So he, he came to the point where he just believed that greed and fear were too powerful and that if people don't want to change 
They will be made to change and they will be made to change. You know, now we don't have to, you know, we can, we can force that change and we can love them and we can love everybody. And we just, there's certain information that needs to be shared with everyone so that we can walk through the doorstep of freedom that these guys knocked down 150 years ago, men and women, by the way. If you're just joining us, I'm talking to Ethan Hawke about his newest project, a TV series called The Good Lord Bird that tells the story of the radical American abolitionist John Brown. And I appreciate everything you're saying about the states there, too. It's always important for me on the, on the Canadian public broadcaster to mention that we have our own history with anti-black racism, that we have our own history with anti-indigenous racism. But I want to talk a little bit about what motivates John Brown here. And, and he's a man of great faith. You said something to me earlier. You said, this is a guy who took, you know, we are all equal, who took do unto others as they would do unto you, who took the golden rule incredibly, literally, incredibly seriously. And what's interesting about that is that he's a man of great faith that mobilizes him in abolition. It's that same religion that at the time the nation was using to justify slavery. Did it think, made you think about faith in your own life, like how we personalize our own faith and how faith can be perceived by the wider public? It makes me think about it so much. You know, I, 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 uh, I'm so disappointed as an adult in uh, white Christian America. And, you know, it sometimes seems like nobody read the Sermon on the Mount and associating yourself with the dispossessed and throwing the moneylenders out of the temple. There's a, there's a thing that my grandfather, when he passed, he was a very serious political person. He was a Texas state legislator and he was a county judge. And he loved politics and, and, and he loved America. And, and he... Noticed through the course of his lifetime, when he was a kid, he was taught that America was the great democratic experiment, you know, that we were a democracy and a free people, and that he slowly, slowly watched America define itself as a capitalist nation, and that it's the people with all the money who are handing it out, and, and all the little people hoping they get, you know, some drop dollar bills, go along with this idea and uh, it's just super important to, to remind ourselves that we are a democracy and how much we need our clergy and the people who have congregations who are leading people to, to teach what they believe in. Because, you know, Jesus didn't put up gold signs outside his house, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. or, or, you know what I'm saying. But he, he, he like, it is, it is interesting. I always find it interesting when the prosperity gospel is mentioned or something like that, that literally in the Bible, it says to, to, help, the, to help the poor. And I, I, I couldn't stop thinking when I was watching the show. Yes, I was loving your performance in it. I was loving the tension in it. I was loving the humor in it. I was loving, you know, the story of John Brown. But I couldn't help but think about that ultimately at the core, there's a, there's a faith. Faith. There's a faith dilemma here, you know. Well, there is. And as, as you continue on, my, my favorite aspects of the series are the last couple episodes and, and where you really realize what John Brown did. John Brown succeed in starting a slave revolution. He did not. Did he succeed in waking up white America and shaming them? And it's OK. You know, people, you do wrong things in this life and you just have to admit it and ask for forgiveness. It's we're not bad. people. I mean, I feel this way all the time about the, the environment. You know, most of us are dying to take care of the earth. We want we want we most of us see the sunrise and we see seals and we see trees and and, and you know, love explodes out of our hearts. Right. We, we want to protect the earth. We we're born into, but we need governments and systems of control to make it easy for us to do the right thing. We want to make it easy for us to be a part of the culture where all children are treated the same and given the same opportunities at education and the same opportunities to excel. 
and it, it's it's up to our leaders to create paths for us that makes it easy to do the right thing. Because most of us are too self-centered, you know? I mean, it's just, we're just busy. It's not we're too self-centered. We're too busy worrying about our own health and our kids' health and our mom's health. And the days pass really quickly. I... um. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about family in just a second. But first, you know, I, even, especially given the news last night, I mean, it's, you're constantly reminded that we're in the middle of an election right now. And the interesting thing about this election is one where American history seems to be on the ballot as well. Like the story of American history seems to be featuring prominently. And I, I find it really interesting. You started by saying, when I was in Texas, I was taught that John Brown was a lunatic terrorist. When I went to Vermont, I was taught that John Brown was a hero. A lot of the problems or a lot of the tension right now has to do with the version of the history that we're taught and told to remember and where we're taught. So how important is it that people are taught these stories of John Brown, of Ella Baker, of Malcolm X, of, of Frederick Douglass? It, it's super important. It's really interesting to me in the South, the people who are really fighting to preserve the statues, the monuments, the Civil War monuments, they always cite the importance of history. You, you know, that's the thing they talk about. But, you know, if you go to... um Berlin, you don't see statues of Hitler and Goebbels. And, you know, these these people, Stonewall Jackson, Jeb Stewart, uh, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, they might be admirable soldiers. You know, they might be. But they tried to overthrow this country and they tried to preserve their right to enslave another part of the country. And that's the history that has to be taught. So, if you, you know, there should be a statue of Harriet Tubman. There should be a statue of all the men who died at Harper's Ferry. These people... Um, you know, the, I think part of the reason they don't want to teach you the story of Harper's Ferry is it shows you that individuals can make a difference. Radical, um, you know, David can take down Goliath. You know, it, it's true. It can happen. And and we have to care because, you know, the, the great energy the system likes to press on you is that it doesn't make any difference. Just watch your own ass. You, you know, like it's it, you're never going to make a difference. And I, I think that showing history, showing what Harriet Tubman did, you know, teaching that you can you can teach the story of the attempted uh, overthrow of the United States of America if you want. But that's how it should be taught. You know, and if John Brown's a lunatic because he killed people, then what's Robert E. Lee? I mean, you know, I mean, this guy killed people on a biblical proportion of biblical proportion. Uh, Ethan, it's been lovely to talk to you. I want to I want to divert. <laughs> I don't know if it has. These subjects are so intense and they're 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 strangely uh polarizing to people and i really don't think they should be uh, oh um, for god's sake i know i hear what you're saying but like no i like d digging into the idea of truth of history of the history that we're taught on, right of, I mean, of faith like it is a hundred percent lovely like it's a hundred percent good to good, talk good, to good, you good. but i do want to i didn't want to get on my soapbox you know nobody needs that no no i should point out he's sitting in a chair uh i <laughs> want to um i want to play something for you we actually had your daughter on the show uh, a couple of months ago, she came in and uh, we asked her about acting and music and she said something we wanted to play for you. There's something that my dad actually said to me once. I was like going to play a role that was, I was auditioning for a role that was younger than I was. And I was like, I'm nervous. Like, how do I play this younger person? I'm like, should I look younger? Like, hair up, hair down, what do I do? And he was like, you know so much more about what's happened before. Like, you know more about yourself at 14 now at 18 which is what I was then, then you knew about yourself at 14 when you were 14. And I think that's true also about time. Um, we know more about the eras that have come before than we know about our own era. That's, uh, that's, that's your daughter there, Maya. What's it like to hear that? 
you know, I'm starting to turn into an old man. You know, my, my eyes get swimmy when I hear that, you know, uh, it's reason to get out of bed in the morning as to see these young people, uh, young people marching and young people caring. And, you know, this generation is going through a lot. 2020, uh, is going to be, you know, when you say your class of 2020 for the rest of your life, people are going to go, Oh, you know, I mean, this, we're living through a lot. And I think it's going to create a very substantive generation. You know, like I talked about my grandfather. Well, you know, he lived through the Depression and World War II. He, 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 he saw things. He didn't take things for granted. You know, I t- my whole generation took things for granted. I didn't know I should be grateful for the NBA. I, I just thought I can watch sports whenever I want. I didn't know, like, oh, that could be taken away from me. You know, we talked earlier about True West and, and Broadway. I didn't know when I was last on Broadway, I didn't walk out on stage giving thanks for the institution of Broadway, giving thanks for the fact that we could be together, that we could share Sam Shepard's writing together and laugh and question and uh, and cough. I remember like I would do this, I did this play and the play has lots of long silences. Sometimes it drive me nuts. You know, there'd be 13 people that I had to, chose this beautiful silence <laughs> that have a coughing fit. And I'd be like, well, you pull yourself together. And now I'm like, oh, how beautiful. They've felt comfortable we could just cough together and nobody had to like have a panic attack and I, I i say this to mean there is so much to be grateful for you know i always loved I, I laugh at myself all the time do you ever go through this you're like my elbow is killing me if only my elbow didn't hurt everything would be fine and then like three days later your elbow doesn't bother you and it's not like you wake up and go thank you for my elbow you know i'm gonna have a great day today because my elbow isn't bothering me you know and i i, I think that this moment. I mean, you know, hearing Maya's voice, this kid is so smart and, you know, you can, I, I love her voice. I love, I use so much heart in her and her. So, you know, I, I you slay me playing that. I'm so proud of her, man. Man, I, I, I bet she is. Uh, I bet you are. I bet she's proud of, of you as well. And uh, thanks so much for your time today. And thanks for talking about all this. It's lovely to talk to you. Yeah. Lovely to talk to you too. Ethan Hawke is an actor, a writer and a director. His, oh, wait, real quick. Yeah, can go I ahead. say one Yeah, thing? go ahead. Go ahead. Can I get some citizenship, please? <laughs> I need dual citizenship. I can't get to my house and I want to come there so bad. And I, I got a COVID test. I'm clean. Let me in. You, Let me in, Justin. You know what? You did the, You did it on the public broadcast or someone will be in touch. I think that's how it works. Okay, that's, that's how it works. Ethan, nice okay. to see you. We'll see you up here soon. Ethan Hawke is an actor, a writer, and a director. His new Showtime series, The Good Lord Bird, premieres this Sunday on Crave. In the world of minimalist music, the composer, singer, and pianist Julius Eastman didn't have much competition. He wrote these classical avant-garde pieces similar to pieces by Terry Riley or Philip Glass, speaking of another guy who makes his home in Nova Scotia. But unlike those guys, Julius was an openly gay black man who made that very clear in the music that he wrote. He once said that all he wanted to achieve was just to be himself, and that meant being, quote, Black to the fullest, a musician to the fullest, a homosexual to the fullest. The last half of Julius's life was marked by isolation and homelessness, and when he died 30 years ago, his music was forgotten too. This month would have been Julius's 80th birthday, and I'm happy to say that gradually people have been starting to appreciate his work in a way they didn't when he was alive. 
Jace Clayton is one of those people. He's an artist and a writer. And he's the guy behind a project called the Julius Eastman Memory Depot, where he's reimagined some of Julius's music. He's also known as DJ Rupture, and he's about to introduce you to Julius. Here's Jace. Hello, my name is Jace Clayton. Uh, a lot of people know me as DJ Rupture, and I'm going to be talking to you about Julius Eastman. So his music, a lot of uh, a lot of what's been recorded are these pieces for multiple pianos, um, and they're often long form. They're very they're very muscular. They're romantic. Um, they're dense, and yet there's this through line of incredible beauty and delicacy and slow evolution within them. So they're almost like these entire sound worlds. And he's operating within the frameworks of what we know as minimalism, you know, um, like Philip Glass, Steve Reich, and those sort of companions of his. Um, But there's a very particular take on it um, that he is engaging with uh, that is a little, you know, there's more influence. I hear more influences from the world of improvisation and the world of jazz and even the world of dance music that he was also involved with. So he was a gay black man um, in, and out and proud. So very kind of like the leather diva, you know, um, upfront about his sexuality and his politics. And this was in an era when that wasn't, um, that certainly wasn't the norm. In fact, that was the wild exception. Um, and not only that, you know, this was a time when a lot of other mu- musicians were making music, minimalist classical music, you know, that was hyper um, self-referential. Music for 18 musicians, things like this, where the titles imply the clean white space of the gallery. And Eastman took the complete opposite approach. You know, he titled his tracks things like Gay Gorilla, uh, If You're So Smart, Then Why Aren't You Rich, Crazy Bleep. But we could talk about that. We could talk about that. Yeah, and so that's one of the funny things to Eastman. It's like, like by making these very um, provocative and explicit song titles, it's almost it's a. I mean, on the one hand, it's very serious because it limited the ability for these pieces to be performed and and even discussed. Um, but it's also a joke for the future, you know. So even now, we still can't say the titles of certain Eastman pieces on on the microphone on air, um, and it's even sort of. It's a it's a dark joke to be sure, but it's even funnier because you know you've got songs like Evil Bleep, um, that are if you just listen to them, you're just hearing four pianos. There are no lyrics. There's no immediate signifiers drawing you into into the world. But Eastman was saying, "Hey, I'm going to tie this to a racial epithet, and I want you to think about the connections between this abstract beauty." And then the conditions that are governing his real life, his ability to move around and get work done as a, a black man, as a gay black man in New York City. Back in the 70s, Julius Eastman was is incredibly busy um, working with all sorts of well-known musicians. You know, he worked with Morton Feldman. He sings on a Meredith Monk album, Dolman Music. Uh, he performed John Cage's music. He worked with Arthur Russell on some of his disco songs. And so in that sort of downtown scene, he was very much a figure. Um, and that was the interesting thing for me because, again, like reading histories of this, 
up, up until very recently, there was no mention of Eastman. And so he was certainly present in all of these. He sort of knew all the right people. Um, but his persona, his life and work was a little bit too radical, a little bit too edgy. And he wasn't central enough in any one scene to really kind of make that leap into the historical record um, that would make that would have made him a household name, like or a familiar name, like a lot of the other people I just mentioned. Julius Eastman actually had a tragic life, and a lot of it had to do with his uncompromising stance towards his art. Um, and so, sadly, uh, Eastman battled with drugs and alcohol. Um, he was kind of famously evicted from his East Village apartment uh, in the late 70s, and all of his, or many of his scores and musical manuscripts were just thrown out in the street. So he was living in the rough for a while, and kind of eventually he left New York City, and unfortunately he died very young. He died at the age of 50 um, in 1990 in up, up in upstate New York, where he was from. And at that point, by that point, he was virtually kind of um, effectively disconnected from all of his friends or all the sort of musical community that, that, we, that we know him through in New York City. St. Catherine said... His legacy, it, it sort of didn't fit with um, a lot of the, the narratives then and now about like what classical music is supposed to do, who is supposed to be able to make classical music, even the type of themes that this music can address. Um, and so I think that is why we're seeing a, a resurgence, this beautiful resurgence of interest in his music now, because ideas of gay and lesbian activist identity are becoming much more... Um, pronounced and they're less in a way they're less alien and they're less threatening to the mainstream now as they were then my name is jace clayton also known as dj rupture and i have been talking uh, about the life and work of julius deesman she said she said he said she said he said he said she said he said she said he said John, John, John. That is Jace. Oh, thanks to Jace Clayton, I should say. Julius Eastman was a composer, singer, and pianist. That's Julius Eastman, the beautiful baritone you're hearing right now. Just turn that up for a second, son. For the record, that song is called Prelude to the Holy Presence of Joan Dock. So if you've ever experienced the end of a romantic relationship, you know how hard it can be to fully let go. Memories are powerful things. But there's also the issue of all the little objects, ticket stubs, cards, presents, the toothbrush your ex left behind. In the new film, The Broken Hearts Gallery, you meet Lucy, a 20-something New Yorker who has a habit of holding on to those little relationship souvenirs way past the point you'd expect. Lucy keeps everything, and her habit keeps her from moving forward until she hatches a plan to bring her broken-hearted people she meets together to share their souvenirs from past relationships. The Broken Hearts Gallery is very funny. Don't get me wrong, but like it's a movie about why you have that impulse to hold on to your past so fiercely and what you can learn from letting go. It's also sort of the anti-Marie Kondo 
the anti-Spark Joy movie. Natalie Krinsky is the Canadian writer and director of the Broken Hearts Gallery. Before that, she was a writer for shows like Grey's Anatomy and Gossip Girl. She joined me from L.A. Welcome virtually back to Canada. Oh, thank you. Well, I spent last summer uh, in Toronto shooting this movie, and I'm very, speaking of nostalgia, very nostalgic to come back and do another one. I'm sort of thinking about the pre-COVID sort of happy world that we were occupying last summer, um, looking back on it with rose-colored glasses. So <laughs> I know, I <laughs> know. To be back. I'm, I'm, I feel like we all are. I feel like we, we didn't know what, what Joni Mitchell said. We didn't know what it was got, what we had till it's gone. Yeah. Um, hey, Paradise put up a parking lot. <laughs> can you um, tell me a little bit about this? I, I read about you that you don't love the term rom-com. You prefer, prefer funny love stories. I mean, I like, I love a rom-com, but I feel like over the, you know, past, I would say, couple decades, the rom-com has kind of gotten a bit of a bad reputation. And so I wanted to refashion it as a funny love story. But I'm also happy to bring back the glory of the rom-com, because I think that certainly in this time, who can't root for two people to fall in love and end up together? Why do so, you think, think rom-coms get a bad rep? You know, I think that through the sort of like beat up younger sibling of the film canon. And I think that <laughs> <laughs> I just I do. And I think that they, you know, people just don't view them as kind of wonderful as they can be. But I think some of our greatest movies, if we look back, are romantic comedies like when Harry. I mean, some of my favorites, When Harry Met Sally, arguably broadcast news. I, and some of the old classics, like uh, It Happened One Night or His Girl Friday, like there's a great history of the romantic comedy. And I think we should keep making them because I think that they ultimately bring joy. And I think that there's something uh, a little bit underrated about that. You wrote the script for the Broken Hearts Gallery almost a decade ago when you were in your yeah. mid-20s. What was going on in your life back then? Oh, you're really dating me. Um <laughs> A lady never tells her age. No, uh, I, you know, I was very much in the similar situation as Lucy. I was, had ended this on again, off again, sort of heartbreaking relationship. I had been fired from my job. I was a struggling young writer, sort of trying to make it in the wilds of Los Angeles and in Hollywood. I was moving apartments. And I was kind of, you know, going through the detritus of the wreckage of this relationship and sort of saying, like, well, what am I keeping and what am I getting rid of? And how am I supposed to am I just supposed to throw these things in the trash? And that's sort of where the idea I, and I sort of thought to myself, well, I'm really the beginning of a romantic comedy and being a lover of romantic comedies. I was like, this is the jumping off point for a great story, hopefully. So I started writing it and. And then a quick 10 years later, we made the movie. <laughs> Let's take a listen to a clip from the film. We are coming from a good place. We're worried about you. You sit shiva in this room. Pablo. The point is, getting rid of these things doesn't mean getting rid of the memories. Marie Kondo says... We do not speak of her in this house. Okay, these things, they can't just end up in some landfill. Do these things spark joy? Does this spark joy? Yes, clearly a lot of joy. Seriously? Yes! At least get rid of the ex-memorabilia. Give it back to the guys you dated. Wait, I'm supposed to just call my exes out of the blue? Yeah, the ex-memorial goes today. Fine. Okay, a few things. Not this. 
That's a clip from the new film, The Broken Hearts Gallery. I should point out the object that sparks a lot of joy that Lucy isn't willing to let go of is a naked Barbie doll with crazy tangled hair. Lucy yeah. there, played by the actor Geraldine Viswanathan, um, she creates The Broken Heart Gallery, a place for people to showcase souvenirs from their own past relationships. It's a real thing, right? Like real-life oh, yeah. museums exist for stuff from people's old relationships, right? Yeah, they do. There is there is one that was started by some artists in Croatia. And now I think there's so many sort of of these kind of, I suppose, museums for our everyday objects or museums celebrating like ice cream and celebrating all these sorts of sort of mundane things as a part of our lives. So why not, you know, the Broken Hearts Gallery? Is that a dog? Oh, no, that's my I just had a baby. Sorry. <laughs> Three weeks ago. I'm so sorry. No, it's OK. The same week I was launching the movie. Uh, sorry. This is the, the joys of working from home slash perils. The same week I was launching the movie, I had my second son a month early. So you're hearing him hiccuping in the background. So oh, I'm that's sorry to your so <laughs> sweet. Not at all. No, it's, it's, I tell you, it's a joy. We had Alanis Morissette yesterday who did her, I don't know if you saw, but she did oh her. Oh my God. She did her Tonight Show appearance with uh, her kid in her arms, like talking and like taking her headphones off. I think that's just, Oh my God. I have to look that up. I mean, talk about a Canadian, like someone I grew up just idolizing. So thank you for telling me that you had Alanis Morissette yesterday. Essentially, I'm telling you you're the Alanis Morissette of, of film. That's what essentially what I'm doing right now. Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> welcome. Why do you think people hold on to the past? You know, I think that it's a source of comfort. I think that we all like to um, celebrate our personal histories. And I think there's a little bit of something of that. If you let these things go, it's like if a tree falls in the forest, did it, does it, does it make a sound? If all these artifacts from our lives are gone, did the things really happen? They're a way of sort of summoning the past. And I think that nostalgia is a little bit underrated, if I'm being honest. And I think there's something Obviously, Lucy has a big problem because she holds on to everything, including like the salt shaker from the diner that she has a fun meal <laughs> with her friends at. But I do think that, you know, I'm looking, for example, right now at the bookshelves in my house and they're sort of a personal history, seeing all of the books that I read over the course of my teens and 20s and 30s now. And I, I just think that it's all a part of who we are. And we like to kind of remember. I love the sort of anti-Marie Kondo bent to this film as well. <laughs> that there is – that we are not – you know, the idea of getting rid of something that's, that doesn't spark joy seems very reasonable. And I'm not going to pass judgment on it. But you're making an interesting point that that even though things might not have a function in our lives, even though things might be – you might not pick them up and feel great when you hold them, they might still have some meaning to you. Of course. And I think that there, especially in this time where we've been at home surrounded by our things, I think that in some ways there's a, um, it's kind of nice to go back and to look at the things that, you know, have made you who you are today and the memories associated with them more so than just the things themselves, I suppose. Just maybe not an old naked Barbie doll. No, there's no old naked Barbie dolls. I will say the one thing about having children is it forces you to get rid of a lot of your things because you need to make room for their things. <laughs> oh, isn't that, isn't that kind of like life pressing reset, isn't it? Oh, totally. <laughs> if, if you're just tuning in, my guest is the Canadian writer and director, Natalie Krinsky. We're talking about her new film, The Broken Hearts Gallery. And as I mentioned earlier, it was the first screenplay you wrote. You wrote it on spec, meaning you wrote it but didn't pitch it necessarily to anyone. Several years later, you were asked to direct it. And can you tell me the story here? Because you were, you were a bit taken aback by that opportunity, right? 
totally. I mean, as a writer, you're kind of, especially in the film world in Hollywood, you're sadly uh, <laughs> a little bit of the lowest woman on the totem pole because you eventually hand your script over and someone else, you know, kind of brings it to life. A, a director brings it to life. And I had always thought to myself like, oh, one day I'll direct, you know, I'll create a show. And then in season two, episode 14, I'll direct that. And then slowly I'll be able to work my way up. And when No Trace Camping, who's the Canadian producer financier that approached me to sort of revive this script that I had very much like an ex-boyfriend sort of put away and thought, okay, maybe one day we'll reunite and it'll be the right time. <clears throat> and they came to me and said, you know, we need you to do a quick rewrite on this script, which everyone who's a writer knows there's no such thing as a quick rewrite, <laughs> but why, you know, why don't you tackle this again? And I did. And over the course of doing that, we had had multiple conversations about what the film looked like and felt like and sounded like and, you know, what I imagined and casting and sort of all these different things. And when I had finished the rewrite, they said to me, well, why don't you direct it? And I was very taken aback because usually that is not something that happens to anyone in this industry, much less a woman, quite frankly. And I said, well, what do I have to do? Do I have to act it out for you or make a reel? Like, what do you want from me? And they said, no, you just need to say yes. And so I said, thank you for letting me know what it feels like to be a straight white guy. I accept the challenge and I dove right into it. And I have to say it was in many ways, because it was my first script, because I had lived with it for so long and thought about it so much, it just felt like the thing that I was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. I just sort of jumped in and it was a no brainer. And so it was a lot of work, but it, it was extremely, I suppose, cathartic to be able to shepherd this thing from birth to, you know, out into the world. But I, I'm guessing the, re the rewriting process must have been a bit of a trip because you're going back and essentially rewriting yourself in your 20s, you know? Oh, God, what a nightmare. I mean, I think any writer will tell you that sort of going back and reading something that you've written. I mean, sometimes I go back and read something I wrote last week, and I'd rather be buried alive than have to <laughs> look at it again. But, um, you know, it was definitely a little bit harrowing to do so, I'm going to be honest, because it was the first script I'd ever written. But it was great because I had learned so much in the interim years. And so I was able to kind of apply some of, you know, writing is a muscle and I was able to apply some of the things that I gained over time um, to the script, which I think ultimately you know, made it better than it was when I was 26 years old. The, the Broken Hearts Gallery features people of color in several key roles, including the lead role of Lucy, which, as I mentioned, is played by Geraldine Viswanathan. But race isn't a major theme in the film. You know, why was it important for you to not make race a major plot point in the way that other films might, if you know what I mean? For me, this was very much, the casting process was very much about trying to portray the world as I see it around me. A young group of friends in New York would be, you know, a diverse group, a group of kids who maybe had some, you know, went to NYU, became friends there and live in Brooklyn. That's a, you know, a group of friends that will have a lot of different ethnicities and backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds and, and whatever else. But for me, it just you know, this isn't a story about a woman of color falling in love. This is a story about a woman falling in love. And I think that though, you know, conversations about race are important and we should be having them, 
it's not one that I think this particular film needed to tackle. I think sometimes it's more important to, not more important, but it's as important to see people who look all different kinds of ways on screen, just doing very human things, which is how most people conduct their lives most of the time. I don't think that Geraldine looks at herself as, I mean, and I, maybe I'm putting words in her mouth, but I think if she's falling in love, she's just a woman falling in love. And so why can't we tell that story for all different kinds of women? In, in the last 30 seconds here, um, you, when you first wrote the script almost a decade ago, I'm sure you couldn't have imagined releasing it in the midst of a global pandemic. Oh my God. Or, 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 or if, you, if you did, I'll, I'll take lottery tickets from you right after this. But like, yeah. what do you, why do you hope this film brings people at home at, at a time like this? You know, I think that this kind of goes back to your first question about the romantic comedy. I think that we're in a really difficult time um, kind of in the world right now. I mean, obviously, as we sort of touched on before we, we got on together, there's an election going on and there's a lot of polarizing things happening and we're isolated very much. And I think that there's something really human about the rom-com form. And I think that for me, there's sort of two things that... Hopefully this movie is an escape just for a couple hours for people um, as they've sort of been in this rather grim time. It can be a source of um, hope and optimism and just remembering what it is to kind of meet a stranger and fall in love. And I think that's something that can unite all of us, regardless of where we are on the political spectrum. And then the other thing for me that was really important goes to your question about Lucy, which is she's a character, though she has her foibles and anxieties and she can't let go. And, you know, there's a lot going on. She never kind of twists or alters herself um, in order to be loved. I think she's a woman who asks the world to love her, not despite the fact she is weird, but because she is weird. And I think that's something that we all deserve. So... Those are the things that I hope that people can take from this sweet rom-com. Natalie, thanks thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. This was such a pleasure. My conversation with Natalie Krinsky, she wrote and directed the film The Broken Hearts Gallery. It's playing in theaters now across Canada and the U.S. That is it for the show today. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Uh, if you want to find me on the old Instagram gram, I'm at Tom Joe Power. The show is at CBCQ. We'll see you on Monday for my conversation. This is very exciting. I hope you like. I just no way you made it to the end of this podcast, by the way, because I have never listened to the last ten seconds of a podcast in my entire life ever. I've never listened. My favorite podcast. I haven't made this since the last ten seconds. But just in case you're there, Alanis Morissette is on the show on Monday. All right, we'll see you then later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.